The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. For me, I've always needed to align my personal values with whatever kind of professional work that I do. I used to work in finance. That culture was not for me. Learned that very quickly. Did what I did to need to adapt. But at the end of the day, I spent a lot of my time doing a lot of volunteer work through urban rooftop gardens. At the time, it was Brooklyn Bridge on a volunteer mm -hmm. basis taught through New York Cares, through a prep SAT program in Harlem. And that just really instilled that the work that I needed to do needed to have just a social mission, which is why we're a social enterprise. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 9, regular listeners to the show. Welcome back. I always greet you with open arms, and I've actually gotten to say hi to some of you at Vertifarm Conference, and I am recording this in case you notice a difference in the sound quality from my hotel room as I get ready to jump into day three. So with the changes in time zones. You may be hearing this at, in the evening or in the daytime, but it's been a fun experience. It was a long trip to get here and well worth the time. Special thanks again to the team at Vertifarm and AVF Summit. It's been great to connect with folks, new folks, fans of the show, past guests, partners, sponsors. So much fun to be in this industry and to see what's happening, see the excitement that's happening. And just have these face-to-face -face conversations, really nothing can beat that. So it's been a really, really great experience. If you are a new listener, then this is what happens every single week here. We talk to some amazing folks in the world of podcasting. And we get them just relax and just uh, kick back their heels and share their stories, share their inspiring origin stories. And talk about what's happening in the world of vertical farming for them, how they got started, what inspired them, what continues to inspire them. And that's really what makes this show what it is. And so I'm appreciative of you checking the show out. And I hope you continue to spread the word. Tell your friends in the industry. Tell your friends that are not in the industry. Tell them to, if you want to learn about something about uh, vertical farming, you should probably check this podcast out, Vertical Farming Podcast. So thanks one and all for all the help and the support of this show over the years. It's been really appreciative. In case you missed last week's episode, I spoke to Rob Van Stratton of Skytree, who's actually at this conference and I got to see Rob here, which is always fun, and uh, past guests as well. We talked about his discussion of uh, his journey, his career journey in getting to this point and Skytree's ESG compliance journey as well. We get a little technical and figure out the ins and outs of CO2 capture technology for vertical farms, and we share Rob's insights on the industry. Really great to see what they're doing, and that's a very informative episode, so make sure you check that out if you have not already. This week's guest, Tinia Pina, we connected at Indoor Ag Tech NYC, actually Indoor Ag Con, I think was the first time. And then we had put it on the calendar. And finally, over the few months, we made the time work and we were able to have this conversation, which I really appreciate. So we asked some questions in this conversation about the existence of uh, tech and privacy. That's how we started. He was top of mind for me and helpful and grateful to Tinia for providing some of our context there. And then we share some stories about our time spent in New York and the energy that's there. It's interesting because I've got a strong relationship to the city, having grown up just outside of it and having lived in it several iterations of my life. And, and my recent trip there was a reminder that sometimes the energy can be a bit overwhelming. And I don't know if it's something that's changed after COVID, but it's different for me now. And maybe it's because of the time I've been spending in Minneapolis, uh, actually just outside Minneapolis in Minnesota, and just being 
able to wake up and see trees in my backyard and the occasional turkey or deer that's running through the yard, which happens. And, and you notice that your stress levels are definitely reduced. And so when you're in an environment like your city, it sort of creeps up on you again. So we talked with Tinia about the work that they're doing with renewable, the challenges and the growth potential for sustainable agriculture. We talked about the exciting potential of giving farmers more flexibility from irrigation to material types, the potential of home farming and investment possibilities to provide security, both within the U.S. and outside as well. Her team is doing some inspiring work in the world of renewable resources and sustainable agriculture. So very insightful to hear what's happening in this space as it's something that's a little new for me. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you. If you're enjoying this episode or past episodes and you're a new listener, then the homework is to go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP and leave a rating and a review. And I'd love to read yours out next to get a shout out on this podcast. And keep in mind, if you're listening to this on the go, that these episodes have a ton of takeaways as always. But as a listener, I want you to focus all your energy on the conversation. So don't feel like you need to pull up a notepad, take notes. Everything from this specific episode can be found at verticalfarmingpodcast.com, where you can click into the episode, play it, and all the show notes are there, and it'll include all the guest links also. All right, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Tinia, here are a few words from the partners that support this show. Mark your calendars for the CEA Summit East in Danville, Virginia, from September 19th to the 20th, 2023. This two-day event, co-hosted by Indoor AgCon and the Virginia Tech IALR Controlled Environment Agriculture Innovation Center, brings businesses and academia together to help you grow your business. Immerse yourself in a full lineup of research showcases, panel discussions, and keynotes featuring top experts, grower operators, and other thought leaders. Explore the latest CEA innovations from tabletop exhibitors. Enjoy quality networking opportunities. Don't miss this unique opportunity to attend a conference at a research facility where you can get a first-hand look at cutting-edge research projects happening right now and explore ideas for collaboration with Virginia Tech and IALR researchers as well. Vertical Farming Podcast listeners can save 10% off the standard passes with code VFP. Visit ceasummit.com for more details and to register. If you're considering container farming, then look no further than Farm Anywhere. Astute listeners will recognize the name from my conversation on episode 99 with Gabriel Zarafanitis. Farm Anywhere is renowned for their state-of-the-art container farms and complementary agricultural equipment, which guarantees a robust start to your indoor farming venture. Even better, Farm Anywhere is providing a discount exclusively to listeners of this show. A $5,000 reduction in delivery fees, no monthly subscription charges, and many other benefits. To take advantage of this special offer, visit farmanywhere.ag forward slash VFP. I've been excited about the work the team is doing at Farm Anywhere since my conversation with Gabriel, and this is a fantastic offer you should take advantage of if it's a fit for you. The link again, farmanywhere.ag forward slash VFP. So Tinia Pina, founder and CEO of Renewable, thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Anytime. Thanks for having me, Harry. (laughs) We're going through the ups and downs and the ins and outs of security and privacy online. (laughs) (laughs) Prior to hit and record, we were having some issues with this platform, which I think we got resolved. But this idea of like passwords floating around and security online, it's not something we we needed to concern ourselves with. Like 20 years ago, I grew up in the 80s and it's really weird to have to think about all the things we need to take care of now to protect our privacy. Totally. And it, it changes the way we do business now, too. Yes. Yeah, you were sharing a story that was pretty scary with someone that had their privacy or their information hacked and it didn't turn out well for them. I saw a post recently, someone posted, I think it was on Slate about this is what life used to be for people who worked in my generation. And people were just posting these vignettes of like, as soon as I, I was done with work at five, I would just leave and go like hang out with my friends at the bar and I never have to think about work. And like, I didn't have an email and like I had one awkward sounding email for work that I never used. Or like I would get up in the morning, hang out with my friends and we watch friends, musty TV and, and that's all we would do. And that's all we had that was on TV. And it was this weird moment in time that I think about it now. And I mean, mostly everyone, myself included, like the phones at the bedside and I catch myself. I'm like, this is not the first thing I want to be doing. So I have to like train myself. I don't know if insidious is too heavy a word, but it's just this 
slowly over time this creeping in of like technology into our worlds to the point where people feel like they can't do without it yet we did do without it a decade ago and I'm wondering what that experience has been like for you yeah I mean that's a great question I think it's very existential because I think the main thing that it's triggered by is fear of missing out so a lot of FOMO yeah. and the fear of not being relevant and I think if people can just remove a lot of that attachment to those two fears then yes, you can become centered. You can just create a lot more boundaries. I think that has also kind of caused a lot of perhaps the hype in our industry that we've you know been hearing about and seeing. And if really people just focus on the core competency, their, their core mission, despite how challenging and especially when you're creating a new category, it really removes that what seems to be just a very just negative kind of energy that none of us want to be attached to. Yeah. How have you found that has changed like your behavior or your relationship to tech? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we've been tech enabled, but not tech in the sense of there is a sophisticated software algorithm or tech hardware mm -hmm. that really makes us who we are and differentiates us. And I think that gave us a lot more flexibility with how we raise money and really just doubling down on what we're doing have all has always been hard. But thankfully, and I'm so glad that we don't rely on having to focus on tech and just the IP of it, it does really allow us to take and innovate on existing kind of processes and using off-the-shelf commercial equipment, for example, and just hone in on where can we be more cost-efficient so that we can provide something more affordable, more responsibly sustainable, and ideally more resource-efficient, because that's our core focus. We want to differentiate ourselves with our services and our products based on that. I think when you get distracted by tech and the features of it, then it really just makes it that much more challenging in what you really wanted to focus on at the beginning of your mission. Home is New York City for you? Good point. Home is originally from Virginia, but okay. I've lived and worked in New York City for almost 17 years now. Okay. And where did you grow up? Woodbridge, Virginia. So right outside of Fairfax. Okay. And what was that like? Good suburban family. Both my parents didn't go to school. I was the yeah. first oldest child to go through college, majored in information technology from Virginia Tech. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just really had a, a very diverse, non-deterministic path to what I do now. But, you know, I think I've just always been grounded with hard work. You know, things have always been hard in the sense of what I've pursued. And when you add manufacturing on top of agriculture, mm -hmm. you really need to have thick skin to just stay focused on it. So I think a lot of people didn't think I would last this long, but I'm here to prove others wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first experience with New York or your, your most memorable? I would say my first experience was I had my first panic attack in the city. Oh, really? <laughs> And it was putting too much money down for an apartment that was about to get swept underneath my feet. And I think, you know, New York City, and I'm sure there's other cities similar to it, it yeah. definitely hardens you. Yeah. But it hardens you in a way that, like, you are so much more respectful of other people's time. So mm. I'm that much more efficient with phone calls. Yeah. And I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate community because you can get really lost in a numbers game rat race here. What do you do to keep yourself centered? I'm a very, you know, I like to go around the city, take photographs with a camera, I like to be around nature. So I try to go out and farm. You know, we're starting a very DIY farm on some land in Massachusetts. And that's my first foray. I don't, you know, I own that I don't have a farming background. Maybe yeah. my ancestors did, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's where I also really appreciate it more because I can be that much more experimental. I am removed of all ego. So I want to learn as much as possible, try as much as possible, and just know that there's hope to be experimental with it. We were talking a little bit before we got started. I just got back from indoor ag tech NYC, and I grew up in New York, grew up in Yonkers, just outside New York City. I've lived up east side in East Village, as the regular listeners will know. And I think what was striking for me is how different I responded to the energy. The event was in Times Square, Marriott Marquis, and as anyone knows, you step into the Times Square and then you're, it's like the energy of Las Vegas, but instead of a strip, it's like <laughs> a four block radius of just like 
I don't even know how to describe that. And it's just chaotic, frenetic, like all of the above. And I think in the past I had more of an appetite for that, even though I preferred that downtown in terms of that energy. But I think as I get older, you sort of have less patience for it or you have to find different ways to cope with it. Or New Yorkers, I used to have a friend who said, I don't go, I don't hang out above 14th Street, I think he said at the time. <laughs> he lived downtown. This was like in the 90s or something like that. I thought it was hilarious. He's like, nope, don't go above 14th Street. So I think everyone responds to it in a different way case and time and but do you find like there's certain pockets of the city that you resonate with and you turn time to kind of stay in those areas yeah absolutely and and it's a thing you know getting friends from queens the bronx brooklyn it's hard to get them out of their own borough because we like to host a lot but for me you know i'm fortunate to live close to the hudson as soon as i go to the water i feel zapped of stress oh yeah, yeah as yeah. soon as same thing with central park so once you find your routine yeah. And that routine helps centers you, grounds you, removes you of the stress. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah, it's great to have that. And then you mentioned you were working on some land as well. So do you find or do you notice a difference that when you leave New York and then when you come back, that shift is like for you? Good question. I think for me, it's like, so this land is not, it's cleared, but it's not developed. So no utilities. And for me, I'm able to kind of it's just like really kind of create my own blueprint by really working with permaculture principles. Yeah. So when I come back to the city, I'm that much more excited to just do and create. So it's very much restorative in that sense. I was looking at some of the experiences you've had from your LinkedIn profile. I saw that you worked at New York Cares and I was familiar with that organization as well from my time in college during a fraternity. We would do coat drives for them and stuff like that. So is that something that's always been a part of you in terms of this ability to do volunteer work, give back to the community? And where did that start for you and, and who inspired that? Yeah, you know, for me, and I appreciate you asking that, for me, I've always needed to align my personal values with whatever kind of professional work that I do. Yeah. I used to work in finance. That culture was not for me. Learned that very quickly. Did what I did to need to adapt. But at the end of the day, I spent a lot of my time doing a lot of volunteer work through urban rooftop gardens. At the time, it was Brooklyn Bridge on a volunteer mm -hmm. basis. Taught through New York Cares through a prep SAT program in Harlem. And that just really instilled that the work that I needed to do needed to have just a social mission, which is why we're a social enterprise, so that it's very easy. And without any question, we need to have something that's going to directly give back in ways that the business can't, but also I can feel good that we're creating this shift for society, whether it's rethinking on how things are used or how food is produced. And so that's what allowed me to kind of go this long. You know, there were many points in the business where I should have given it up and I had like a negative 666, as much as that's indicative of things that you would not think are good, balance in the business. I had a yeah. negative balance in my personal account and there were many obstacles like that where it's like, damn, like I need to really rethink things. But I think just that core mission and my personal values and because I knew what we were working on is so impactful for the industry and just society, that's what helped me keep the grit to keep the persistence. If I didn't have that, or if it was just a quick exit type situation, I wouldn't have stayed this long. Where do you think you learned that from? Good question. I don't know. You know, I think it could be something that, you know, just I was kind of have by birth those traits. But I also think that my parents... I didn't really have like security net to be able to experiment. So anything that I started with this much risk, I had to really fully commit for more than just the opportunity itself. And I think that's what really perhaps did it for me. When did you start to become more interested in the world of agriculture? I saw, you know, there was a collective you joined and even Oregon Tilth. So how did that get on your radar and how did it start to pique your interest and get moving towards that direction? Yeah, New York City Agriculture Collective, which really kind of the founding members, Henry Gordon Smith and several from Aero Farms and a number of others, smallhold others, I really kind of give credit to Henry to creating the community and all of us really just wanting to create what we felt was needed, but also create this culture that, you know, sensationalized and really made a proud sense of wanting to grow food in New York City. And so that's what was one kind of seed. And at first, I didn't know what to expect, but I knew I wanted to be a part of it with a totally different perspective. 
And so that was New York City Agricultural Collective. Still exists, still runs very well. And I think they're doing a New York City Ag Tech Week this upcoming September. Separately with Oregon Tilth, they actually reached out because they were looking for board members with diverse representation and diverse kind of perspectives. And what I felt I brought to the board was, you know, really looking at just more kind of fragmented agricultural markets, especially related to urban agriculture, smallholder farms, and especially CEA. And they, you know, even though organic is definitely value of mine personally, but not limiting ourselves to organic or just organic food, not just produce grown. It's also food that's processed. And so it wasn't hard to get the interest of their board, given the, I think, the diverse outlook that I bring. So I was, I was fortunate in that way. So talk about where you were as you were learning. You get influences from the collective, working with Oregon Tilth, and talk a little bit about the story of how this idea starts to formulate for Renewable and who, if anyone, you're having conversations with at that time. Yeah, so Renewable actually was really conceived before then. When I was working in finance, I took, I just had this random idea because it was totally unrelated to what we do. (laughs) And I always wanted to do work with recycling to the point where I was looking at Mack trucks, these expensive, (laughs) crazy looking trucks, no budget for it whatsoever, but just really understanding the infrastructure and how, you know, material resource transfer stations are handled. And so I took two personal weeks off when I was working in finance to take vacation, go to Des Moines, Iowa, and learn what anaerobic digesters are the huge Mm. municipally owned behemoths that manage organic waste. And I've always felt if we can take the same benefits that food waste as a compost material can provide for soil ecosystems, why can't we mimic that similarly for hydroponic or soyless? Because I see the benefits of bacteria providing in reduced fertilizer inputs amongst other properties. And so I've always been a huge fan of biomimicry always been a huge fan of like, how can we really look at how things react and the synergies within the ecosystems to do that in another scenario. And that really was what started for us. We were focusing on food waste, vegetative waste specifically, and using a bioconversion process that allows it to be sterilized and turned into a homogenous, so same kind of pH and just nutrient um, composition so that hydroponic farms could first start working with it as a replacement to synthetic mineral salts. And it was a rocky experience. You know, we gave out the product to several farms in the industry. They were fortunate. We were fortunate to get feedback from them, had some deficiencies quite transparently with basil in particular at the beginning. And then we worked through, you know, we had a lot of constraints, right, that really limited us to a vegetative waste only product. And so when we realized, okay, how much time are we putting into this? And it doesn't mean we're going to abandon it. But now that we kind of picked up this Renew Terra, which is the focus on using crop residue fibers okay. to choose it as a replacement to Rockwell peat and cocoa core, that really got a lot of interest and gave us more diverse markets than just the U.S., where a liquid organic hydroponic nutrient product is really going to be severely impacted based on shipping costs. Yeah. Whereas a fiber product, not so much. So we put that production on hold and really doubled down on the Renew Terra product line purely because of that. To go to your point, I think the mindset of really looking at cities, how to close the loop on what inputs are, how they're consumed, and how to really turn that byproduct or waste stream or residual into materials that are used on a pretty frequent and high volume basis, that still remains. And the good thing is it gives us flexibility to work with different waste types, irrespective of the geography and the different kind of food production economies elsewhere. So for folks that are not familiar with Renewable and the product line, how it's evolved, since you started and who your customers are. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we're essentially a social enterprise that focuses on a for-profit social enterprise. So a lot of people mistaken that as a nonprofit, but we are for-profit in the sense that we sell, or I should say we develop and commercialize nutrients, a platform of sustainable technology, such as nutrients, as well as fiber products 
that are meant to use byproducts from the food production industry, as well as crop residues to turn them into organic, renewable materials to replace mineral salts on the nutrient side and separately rock wool, peat, and cocoa core on the input side as it relates to grow medias or horticultural substrates. And so our platform for Renew Terra, especially given that's what we've been honing in on, it is anywhere from plugs of different dimensions to blocks, slabs, and mats, but we also have loose fibers. And the intention is to, you know, right now we use a proprietary fiber that allows us to adhere with other existing residual fibers, such as jute. We're also experimenting with other materials that allows us to really bind these two fibers together. And the fibers allow for more water retention, but also more air porosity, the pockets without creating too much density and too much, what I would say, inconsistency in the fibers shape and size that you often see with wood substrates. So that's the main thing that we've been focusing on. Where are you seeing most of the application or interest in terms of the product lines? Yeah, so recently we launched a mat. The Renew Terra mat comes in various shapes and sizes, and that mat is more so grown for or used for microgreen mats, but they're also used in NFT gutters and other really different dimensions that I think some farms have more customized. You asked earlier in terms of the, the farms that we're working with, So they're both here in the U.S. and Canada, as well as abroad in Germany, France, et cetera. So the reason why they've sought us out is for a couple of reasons. So the biggest one is the sustainability. We can speak with truth and confidence that we can reduce the emissions. However, transparently, you know, right now our LCA is being updated. So the way we calculate our emissions. What's uh, the LCA? LCA is life cycle assessment or life cycle analysis. So that would be looking at, okay, all of the inputs going in, all the raw materials and renewables production process, as well as the processes and activities for the customer to receive that finished good, what are the emissions involved? And so that's not finished yet, but what we're able to provide is here's the emissions you're reducing by using our product that has been upcycled. And so sustainability has been the first and foremost followed by affordability. And given that we have flexibility with not only the material density, but also the dimensionality, we can be able to provide more flexibility on the pricing. And then lastly, the resource efficiency. So how the product can be irrigated, we optimize for less water and less irrigation, which indirectly would also reduce energy costs. So those three things took us a while to hone in on, but now with the mats and very soon in August, the plugs followed by the slabs and the blocks, people will be able to see the benefits that we're seeing on the mats translated across those use cases. And do you see that growing faster than the nutrient side? Good question. We get asked that all the time. I do purely for the reason that right now, you know, it's very cheap to ship the fiber product or our Renew Terra line all across the world because it's a light product. Whereas the nutrients were really limited to North America, just based on shipping cost. Mm-hmm. However, the production process, which right now is in upstate New York, is designed so that can be very cost effectively replicated in a distributed fashion. So our goal is not to ship all over the world. That certainly would be counterproductive to our mission. We want to be able to replicate it with strategic partners in other markets where they can take their localized vegetative waste stream or crop residue as a fiber source and turn it into materials that would best be used for farms in that area. What's an example of uh, crop residue? A good point. So in this case, it would be jute. Jute is used as a fiber in many industries, but the jute fibers is a byproduct often for the first like primary industry that it's sold for. Okay. So then when you're creating the nutrients, was there a challenge in standardizing like the levels of all the nutrients you would have? Because I was thinking if you can't control the distribution or the mix of the vegetation that makes its way into the waste, I'm just curious from a without giving away any any secret sauce, like how you determine or how you modify it so so that you're ensuring an even distribution on a consistent basis with every batch that you make. 
Yeah, no fair question. So right now in our upstate New York facility, we do work with a select few of produce byproduct suppliers. Okay. And the reason why they give away is just if they're unable to give it to a farm as livestock feed, then they donate it to us. And it's a standardized, you know, waste makeup right now. That's broccoli, cauliflower, carrots, peas. Sometime that ratio does vary based on the day. But the good thing is that we now have an average baseline of what we can anticipate. And we do, you know, add in amendments that are OMRI certified to allow us to be able to dial in a very consistent macro micro percentage. And how big is the, the team now? Good point. So there is 10 of us. By the end of this year, we plan to grow by at least five to six more. Okay. And how has the, what have been your challenges? Because you started, it looks like you started in 2015. You've talked about a little bit about the highs and lows. Black Swan events like COVID, I'm sure, threw you for a loop. And so can you talk a little bit, maybe some, a couple of the, the highs and lows that got you to this point? And, and obviously, there's some stuff that you had to get through to make it here. So I'm interested in a bit of those stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we first, right before COVID, we were about to go to market with a pellet and a nutrient dispenser, essentially. Okay. What that meant or what it entailed was taking the food waste, pelletizing it, putting it into a digester, if you will, that would be co-located at a farm. And that digester turning it into a affluent that would be done at the site of the farm in real time and at the time that they would actually need the nutrients to be available. Because the problem with organics oftentimes is you can release it or irrigate it in a farm system. And that nutrient composition sometimes, depending on how shelf stable and consistent the nutrient composition is, it can have variability. So we wanted to mitigate for that. And because of COVID, it did require a much more complicated supply chain in order to make that product happen. So we had to completely abolish that, which meant we had to completely change our production process and our manufacturing stack. And that put us behind by 12 months of which we had raised capital to go Mm. to market with that. It also you know, siphoned $500,000 in a loan that was meant to go towards that. So we were challenged in a number of ways, but I really give credit to the team just on how resilient, creative, and that's what constraints do for you, right? It really makes you be more flexible. And how have you grown as a leader? Is is this your first time in the CEO role? And how, you know, you found yourself now, obviously hindsight is 2020, and you can look back at the experiences that got you to this point and, and made you more resilient. But and it's hard to do that when you're still got a lot on your plate. But I'm, I'm just wondering if you have time to sort of pause and reflect how you've grown as a leader over these years. Yeah, a lot. You know, I've always had leadership positions, but nothing to the, I would say, extent of a CEO. And I think for me, the biggest advantage has been for me of just removing any ego, any attachment. And I think that makes me a lot more lean. I lean in to the team I definitely create an environment, and I try to, I would say, to where people feel like they're co-creating, they're contributing just as much as I in the sense of this is part of their vision as well, where yeah. possible. And I think that makes you know all of us our partners on the company. So there's an equity component to it as well. And with that, everyone, I feel from my, my opinion is that they know that they can bring mistakes, they can bring failures, but they know that, you know, there's a healthy environment that they can give opinions to change things without there being any criticism or anything negative that would be retracted from that. And how have you personally, like, do you feel that you've had to either change or evolve in terms of like your personal growth? That's a good question. I mean, I think for me, I've had to just remind myself that it's business. And I think sometimes that's the hardest part. It's like, you know, people mean well, but ultimately it's just business and you just want to do right by your customers, do right by people that you're working with and just move the hell on. And, you know, there have been several times where we have needed to make a quick change that if something was communicated sooner we would have made that change sooner and missed that $10,000 or $15,000 mistake, right? Yeah. But I think people really appreciate when you can talk to them as a regular person and acknowledging that mistake rather than creating an environment where it's hostile and all the stress, like no one needs to pass on stress. I'm mm-hmm. happy with absorbing it. 
So how do you personally manage that? Because that would be a lot to take on for any one person. It is. And I still am not really at a point where truthfully I am scaled quite yet. Right. And I do that because I want to, if God forbid, you know, there was a situation where crap hits the fan and I need to step in. I want to know how to do that person's job too, so I can quickly Mm. resolve it and move on. And I think all of us have had that similar experience and we have that much more respect for people that we're supported by. So I think having that mindset, you're a lot more adaptable you're a lot more empathetic and you're just a lot more more respectful to there being efficiencies with processes because no one wants to be bogged down by things that just aren't working. Yeah. Where do you draw inspiration from in terms of your management style? Good question. I, from others in the sense like your podcast is amazing and understanding <laughs> so how other people navigate things. Yeah, and I yeah, think yeah. that's huge. Yeah. And I hope people will be more transparent with failures, right? Because that's really the source of learning. But I do try to focus on a lot of just what other industries are doing too. I think that is really insightful. Mm. When I look at commodities or when I look at, you know, it could be even the precious rare earth metal mining Mm. industry. There's a lot of bottlenecks related to supply chain. And in the Mm. manufacturing business, we have to be aware of things that are similar too. So I just try to take myself out of the context of CEA or agriculture and think of where else are there similarities or patterns we can kind of be more aware of. To the extent that you're willing to share, what have been some of the challenges for you as a both minority and female-owned business owner in this industry? Appreciate you asking. You know, I think sometimes there is some bias on you know, just people that look like others in this industry and maybe not given seriousness or credit to. And I don't take that personally. I just always focus on how do we prove people wrong, right? Because I know there is legitimacy to what we're doing. The market is already telling us we're getting the feedback. I'm not concerned. But I do think that, you know, where it is hurting others is if there is a need for collaboration, right? I'm super collaborative. It's better that we develop that relationship sooner rather than later. And I think that's where sometimes people in our industry go wrong. There's too many finger pointing. And instead, let's work together to get over this and add more strengths and advantages to create your own moat, that be it or not. And I think that's a really big hindrance. So, you know, not for me to educate, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's just someone else's flag to fly. What has been your experience in the industry? I know that we met at Indoor AgCon earlier this year. Was that your first conference? And is that something that's part of going to be part of your marketing strategy going forward? Oh, good point. No, no, not the first conference. You know, we okay. try to be selective because I have been such a huge fan of the Trader Joe's model, whereby <laughs> yeah, <love that. laughs> you spend little on marketing, yeah. right? Yeah. And just pass all the savings to the customers and yeah. or your team or employees. That's what I'm focused on. So I really, if we show up, it's like we're trying to be celebrities because we are being super selective on showing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's other ways that we'll be testing this year. Don't want to give it out yet of how, whether, you know, that marketing way or campaign is more effective than other more traditional styles. I just am more interested in listening to customers, understanding where gaps are, and really focusing on where can we create savings so that we can transfer it as much as possible because the farmers and the growers are doing the harder work and I'd rather just make their lives as easy as possible and try to understand where we can come in better, again, on three main tenants, more responsibly sustainable, more affordable, and more resource efficient. What was the response to the folks at Indoor AgCon? Good question. Very good. I think there was, so what was interesting is we had this one comparison table that did use referenceable sources okay. of here's how, you know, Renew Terra matches up against Rockwool, Coco Core, et cetera, yeah. in the plug dimension, right? So okay. that form factor, yeah. a lot of people were taking pictures of it. And it was a good conversation starter. That's yeah. the whole intent of it, to be a conversation starter, yeah. to really share how we're approaching this industry differently. And I think what people realized is when you give them flexibility of, irrigation, when you give them flexibility of material type or how big the particle size is, then it just gives them 
the want to have more kind of ownership as part of this, not ownership in the sense of actual ownership and possession, but more of be a part of something that can make a difference in their farm. I find it to be really hard when you're just putting out a commodity and it's not really moving the needle besides a pricing differentiation. And I'm so guessing you had a lot of follow-up conversations. We did. Yeah, Yeah, we did. Who's an ideal partner for you? Is it when I think about like uh, whether they're in a specific aspect of the business or a specific size of farm? Yeah, good point. So a great case point is, so we've worked with, there used to be called Planet to Plate. They're now 100 acres. Okay. That's a great model of a, a small size farm. And we're testing with a number of farms that are also larger in vertical farm size to not put out names yet until we've get, gotten their consent. Hmm. But some of them you know, may use, we have, I didn't speak to this more widely, but we do have a sprout sheet. And it's very interesting from some of the feedback of the farms where they're using this sprout sheet to instead kind of grow their baby greens from. And so it's a very different take on how they're using that as opposed to a traditional microgreen mat. That's one example. Another example would be your typical greenhouse farm in Texas that uses an NFT channel and they want to just replace the floral foam plugs with our Renew Terra plugs. So very soon we'll have those testimonials, but I don't want to give it out just yet without their consent. You did post the experience you had with the farm in Glens Falls. Can you talk a little bit about what the experience was like working with them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they are operating, but not operating at scale yet. That intention with Glens Falls has always been to use our products in their farm, test it against current comparatives, and really see how much more we're moving the needle on sustainability and resource optimization. Because the farm has had a number of just infrastructure challenges on the mm-hmm. you know, energy sourcing and just sizing of the equipment, we're soon going to be considering a new location to replicate the R&D and the data that we wanted to make available to the industry. Okay. And so we'll be releasing announcement on that soon. But Glens Falls, we still co-manage, and the intention of it is to show for New York State a grow box, 480-square-foot grow box, within a third floor of a downtown commercial building or Mm. commercial office space, how this grow box can be kind of retrofitted to expand within the third third floor. Are you finding more and more people in your orbit that were not aware of vertical farming because of their relationship to you, because of what they see you do? Do you find yourself a lot in that educational chair, you know, showing people what's possible? I do, but I also think it depends on which community. So I would say, you know, if I were only speaking to New York State, they're familiar. I think in Glens Falls, it's really understanding how hyper-local and how we can help augment the produce production through the limited six months or seven months in New York State to really help extend the production of conventional farms in in open field in New York state. But beyond that, yeah, I mean, I think it's still a little abstract. It doesn't help that there are certainly small farms that are doing it very well at scale. Farm one is a great example in Brooklyn amongst others, but I think just even kind of removing it outside of the city to places like Glens Falls, hopefully we can really show just a very viable this can exist in peri-urban or rural areas as well. And that was always the focus for Glens Falls Vertical Farm. I was able to tour Farm One. I got there on Friday. So Rob was kind enough to take me on a tour and give us tastes of the plants. And I went with some other folks uh, from the conference as well. You know, they were everyone was just blown away by the amount of flavor packed into some of these herbs that you know most people are not familiar with that were you know, they hit your tongue and you're just like, you weren't expecting like that, that hit of flavor, it's whether it's anise or citrus or all these wild flavors. And he gave us his book, which I, I just finished yesterday. So like, I'm now on the seeing my opportunities to grow some microgreens at home. <laughs> it just kind of kicks off because I've always been interested in and just looking at the different models that are available for home farming as well as so I think. It, and it, this is probably what happens that people get a taste of it or they experience it firsthand and then they start to get excited about the possibilities of it. I think so too. And they've done a really good job of connecting even street side, like yeah. your view of the produce or yeah, the flowers yeah, yeah. and then having exper- experiential experiences there. That's a, I think it's a solid example. Yeah. By the time this episode goes live, I'll have posted some stuff on the Instagram channel, which is really exciting to, oh, to awesome. see. 
So what's a, a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, I kind of, one tough question that we're often asked is, so, and it goes back to our Renew Terra. I think a lot of the technicalities of, okay, well, why does this mat allow for, let's say, higher we're seeing on average anywhere yeah. between 21% to roughly 26, almost 30% just increase in yield. So across radish, cabbage, kale, and arugula, mm -hmm. specifically on the mats. So what's allowing for that if there's no increase in dissolved oxygen yeah. or there's no, you know, really nutrients being applied? And we like to say, even though there's more precision and data being gathered on it, is it's really how the fibers lay onto each other. So they're being molded together using heat, which is mm -hmm. one pathogen kill step for us, but how it allows for more air pockets without creating too much water saturation or too much density as a result of that. And while still allowing for the roots to have quicker kind of rooting, I should say. Yeah. And I think it just really comes down to the fiber selection and how our production process molds those fibers together. However, I think we are experimenting with other fibers beyond jute because jute is pretty biodegradable. It does come with that as a raw material. And so, you know, sometimes the biology on jute for longer maturing plants is something we're still kind of measuring and having analyzed by labs just to make sure that the efficacy that we're seeing really exceptional on the plug side yeah. for slabs and longer maturity plants are also a strength and not a disadvantage. What's something that being an entrepreneur myself, obviously, there's no shortage of days when you wake up in the middle of the night or you get up and you're, the first thing you're thinking about is your business. And so is there something that's been top of mind for you with regards to, you know, where your business is headed or, you know, something that you think about personally in terms of questions you ask yourself? Yeah, good point. You know, I think pricing is always the hardest mm -hmm. game to play. Yeah. And for us, we really just try to cap our costs as much as possible. But I also think the hardest thing for us is, okay, we know we're adding a lot more value based on the average yields, faster growth. How do we price for that? Mm. Knowing that the farmer is going to have that value realized in their grow or production yeah. space, but also not price at a premium. That has always been a challenge. Yeah. As we wrap up, I'd like to leave some space at the end of these conversations for any thoughts you have, messages you have, or anything that's top of mind for you as it relates to your colleagues in this space. As you know, like a lot of folks, your peers, they listen to this podcast. And so I've been sort of forming this informal dialogue and let people talk about what's on their mind as it relates to the industry or a message that you have that's top of mind for you. Anything come to mind? Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, we try to de-risk as much as possible from the heavy metals we had at our Renutera product line analyzed from food safety pathogen. Now we can provide guarantee that is not an issue for us. We are open to all questions and irrespective of how technical it can be to help us better understand how to de-risk the product line for growers. And so if there's any questions, we're open please let us know. I'm on LinkedIn. You can email us at info at renewable, R-E-N-U-B-L-E.com. We'll send a sample and share our case studies to date. Right now, their mats plugs will be released in August. So yeah, we're pretty open just to make sure that we're serving and focusing on the right problem, which I think we definitely are. Okay. We'll make sure we include all those links in the show notes as well. So as we wrap up, What's your thoughts about where we're headed? There's been so much happening in this space. I've been in it for three years now. And it's just been exciting to see the ups and downs. And obviously you see all the news that makes the headlines is obviously the closings and people saying, you know, what's happening with the vertical farming. But from where you're at, and especially having been in this and riding your own ups and downs throughout the years, like what's your take on where we are and where we're headed? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't fault anyone for what has happened to date. I think that's just part of the maturity or maturation of an industry, right? Yeah, yeah. But I do think that if we remove the hyper ego, the hyper growth and the hyper money, then yeah. we can scale back and really focus on modularized and small and just really well branded and more specialty perhaps products to get that premium. Yeah. I think that's where our focus should be. And I also think that I think we would be better served if as a community, as an industry, being how niche we are, 
we're just a lot more collaborative. And, yeah. you know, I think that helps everyone just like there was all this much because there are certainly investors. We know that there are investors, especially given the scarcities that we're seeing, especially in Europe and outside of the U S with produce security, that the people just want to invest in what is reliable and consistent from a sustainability perspective, financial, environmental, social, and we just needed to focus. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your inspiring story. And I think I love the range of guests that we've, I've been getting on the show. And I'm always happy to attend these conferences to see who's out there and people that I haven't met yet. And obviously, you've been in the space for a long time. So I appreciate your perspective. And I appreciate you coming on. And I'm sorry we didn't get to connect in New York City. It was a lot going on, as you might imagine. But I'm definitely looking forward to connect with you at an upcoming conference pretty soon. Thank you so much for your time, Harry. I really appreciate it. And so for folks that connect with you, it's renewable, re-nube.com. And you're active on LinkedIn. You shared that email as well. Anywhere else you want to have listeners connect with you? You know, our website, I look at all the emails that come through. Okay. And so, yeah, best way to reach is website as well. Okay. I appreciate your time. Thanks again. Of course. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. As always, eternally grateful to my guests for spending that precious hour of time with me and sharing their story. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There you'll find summaries, key takeaways, and resources mentioned, and also a back catalog of all our past episodes. Special thanks to our title sponsor, AgTech Marketing Team. If you or your team have been struggling to come up with a comprehensive social media marketing plan and don't know where to begin, reach out to them today. With expertise in strategy, paid media, community management, content generation, influencer, and email marketing, their team can have you up and running in a fraction of the time it would take you to hire a full team and at a fraction of the cost. Learn more at agtechmarketingteam.com. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. To learn about the five key pillars of a successful podcast that every business owner needs to know prior to launching, visit fullcast.co and watch the free video. As a reminder, if you've enjoyed this episode or past episodes, do me a favor, leave me a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Nothing makes me happier than to read those out on future episodes. And don't forget to tune in next week for a conversation with yet another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.